Welcome to another thrilling episode on Book TV. But before we dive in, let's talk about enhancing your reading experience with novel nutrition. As you lose yourself in today's story, imagine supporting your journey with our unique supplements, specially crafted for readers like you. Whether it's boosting focus with Epic, unwinding with Read, or energizing with Zip Strips, Novel Nutrition is here to complement each chapter of your literary adventure. Visit novelnutrition.co or click the link in the show notes, and don't forget to use code BOOKTV for an exclusive 20% discount. Now, let's immerse ourselves in the magic of today's story. Chapter 14 Briggs, Rosemary Beach, Florida Liberty disappeared into the fog, the German short-haired pointer sprinting after the tennis ball like it was a leg of lamb. Daniel estimated visibility at 50 yards. It deadened the sounds of the crashing waves and made him feel like he was the only human being in a mile's radius. Liberty bounded back toward him, the tennis ball found, the tongue lolling out of one side of her mouth. Good girl, Daniel said, when she was close enough to drop the ball and roll it toward him with her nose. She got a coating of Florida panhandle white sand for her efforts. The ball sailed through the air again, and off she ran, her enthusiasm for such a task contagious. Daniel had come to understand the importance of these downtimes, these moments between moments. Others might call it boring, the calm before the proverbial storm, but this was the time Daniel used to recharge, re-engage, find his spiritual center. And he needed it, especially today. A muffled bark sounded from where Liberty had gone, and a figure appeared, trailed by the wagging tail that moved so hard it shook the dog's rear half from side to side like a metronome. Daniel raised a hand in greeting, and the woman, sandals in hand, waved back. She could be a hundred and ten years old, and Daniel would still find her beautiful. Anna, he said, when she came in for a hug. I've missed you, Anna Farushkin said, giving him a good squeeze. Now, let me look at you. She held him at arm's length. Hair still ponytailed and scruffy, face in dire need of a shave, but it looks like they've been feeding you well, as well as when we first met. Not quite. You'll have to challenge Top to a duel. I'd love to see you two duke it out in the kitchen. Top was Master Sergeant Willie Trent, USMC, retired. At close to seven feet tall and as chiseled as Zeus, the Marine was a classically trained chef and the Jefferson Group's reigning stand-up comedian. Anna hugged him again. I have really missed you, you know. I'm so glad you called. They spent the first hour of their walk talking about mundane nuggets of life, though both lives had been far from mundane. Daniel was a covert operator who spent his time finding bad guys and either putting them in the dirt or in a cell. Anna led the Fund, a powerful conglomerate founded by Soviet and Russian expatriates. Daniel did not know how many billions the Fund had in its coffers, but he did know that since Anna took the reins following her grandfather's death, Returns kept growing with the influx of capital and partnerships. I was so sorry to hear about Diane. My time with her is something I'll always cherish. She was one of the good ones, Daniel said, 
picking up the tennis ball and throwing it into the fog. And how is Cal? I can't imagine what he's going through. This is the second time, am I right? Daniel nodded. First he loses Jessica, and now Diane. Anna squeezed his hand. There's something you're not telling me. I can tell, remember? Yes, she could. She might be the only person in the world who could read the unreadable Daniel Briggs. There was no sense hiding it. It was my fault. I should have protected them. I don't know how to tell him I'm sorry. He had already said it to God. Now he was saying it to the woman he most respected in the world. She had all the power of a world leader, and yet she chose to stay humble and loving. Tell me what happened. Daniel explained, going into just enough detail about the operation in Canada months before. He left out the major players, at least for now. He described how the rogue sniper lured Diane out in the open, then shot her, probably thinking it was Cal. That's a tough one. I'm sorry, Anna said, not letting go of his hand. He needed that hand, that human touch. I should have done more, he said. I should have secured the area, had more men, something. This doesn't sound like you, Daniel. I know you're hurting for your friends, but you know as I do what happens in the head of a madman when he gets the scent of blood and revenge. There's no stopping that unless it's a bullet. And she knew from experience. They both did. That was the bond that first brought them together. Anna's father, a wolf in sheep's clothing, actually a preacher's clothing. And then she went into CEO mode, the calculations kicking into gear. Tell me what you've learned. What's the silver lining? At that, Daniel smiled. I didn't tell you about Lena. Anna's eyebrow arched. And who, pray tell, is Lena? Lena is a 19-year-old woman with quite possibly the best natural instincts of any sniper I've ever met. High praise coming from nature's gift to Marine Corps sharpshooting. I want to hear more. You will. In fact, I was hoping you would meet her in person. Up for a road trip? I'll be your beck and call girl, Anna said with a happy twinkle in her eyes. Good, because there's more we need to discuss. Oh, I was hoping this would be a vacation. She sank into the seriousness of the situation. But I should know better than that when I'm with you. She wrapped her arms around his midsection. So, what is it? There was no other choice. He had to call on her. She would know, or she would be the person with the best resources, to find out. I need you to tell me about the Russian president. Chapter 15 Lena Camp Spartan, Arrington, Tennessee. Jab, 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 hook. Miss, miss, miss. Whiff. Lena blew a stray hair out of her eyes and squinted through the sweat. You're trying too hard, Top said. She didn't know how such a big target could be so hard to hit. Jab, jab, jab. He grabbed her wrist and applied just enough pressure. Before she could comprehend what had happened, she was on her back, looking up at the grinning Marine. He offered her a hand. She took it. What am I doing wrong? 
she said, going for a quick sip of water. You're not doing anything wrong. You said I was trying too hard. You are, but you're learning. For example, you took my hand when I offered you a help up. That's called being smart. You always take a friend's hand when he offers it. It was one of many lessons the huge man liked to sprinkle into their training. She tried to ignore them at first, but it was hard not to like Top. He was too fair, too nice, and holy moly could he cook. Okay, so I'm not doing anything wrong. You're saying that I'm getting better? Top nodded. That's right. You're getting it. But let's talk turkey. You're what, 115 pounds soaking wet with a pack on? Now look at me. Aside from all the pretty in my face, do you think this is something you'd take on hand-to-hand -hand in real life? Not unless I was crazy. Right. So why are we doing this? What am I trying to get you to learn? Lena thought about that. So many lessons. What was the common theme? Or was there one? That I can push through the pain? Top smiled. I had a pretty good feeling that you already knew that before you stepped in the ring with me. Tell you what, I won't make you guess, because it's not something on the surface. He threw her a towel, and she mopped herself off. You have any friends? It should have been an easy question. Every 19-year-old female had friends. I used to. And what happened to them? They're dead or gone. Top's eyes softened now. He saw her pain even when she tried to hide it. I want to be your friend, Lena. We want to be your friends. That's the lesson. The rest of this training, your sessions with Doc Higgins, shooting with Daniel, or busting through doors with Gaucho, it's all icing on the cake, honey. We sue you. Do you understand that? You're one of us. She had lost so much. Her traitorous father, her old friends, any semblance of a life. Then again, had she ever really had a life? No. She couldn't accept his words that easily. So am I free to go, or am I still under house arrest? Lena asked. You know why you're here, Lena. People much more important than me have to decide what to do. And when they do, if they say I can go, will you let me go? Of course. But we hope you'll stay. Not because you have to stay, but because you want to stay. Lena took another sip of water and dropped the bottle on the ground. I'm a pummel your ass now, punk, she said, holding up her fists. Top grinned and waded in for the thrashing. There's a secret once hidden, a treasure the ancients used daily. It's turmeric, the golden spice of life. In the heart of ancient India, this revered root was more than a culinary delight. It was a symbol of purity, a source of wellness. Novel Nutrition brings this secret to you with our fire supplement. Each fire gummy is a nod to those ancient traditions, harnessing the natural, powerful anti-inflammatory and antioxidant benefits that have supported health and vitality for centuries. Nab your supply of Novel Nutrition's fire by clicking the link in the description and using code BOOKTV for a 20% discount. Read more. Live more. Be more. Chapter 16 
Springer, Jacksonville, North Carolina. Tight-lipped simpletons, Springer said, putting his car in drive and watching the rearview mirror at the three jarheads staring him down. He hated this town. It only existed because of Camp Lejeune, the largest Marine Corps base on the East Coast. Springer wondered what would happen when the uppity bastards read his story right there, smack dab on top of the headlines. Probably can't even read, he muttered, steering his way past strip malls and traffic, waiting to enter the base. Springer liked to follow a trail like a hound on scent. He had started at the beginning of Briggs' career. The training didn't count. He knew there were a host of veterans who stuck close to their former calling after they left the service, so he'd come to town to dig. He used a cover story that friends of the Marine sniper would like. Dirk Springer, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, was doing a hero piece on the great Daniel Briggs. Who'd say no to that? Any journalist who really knows how to get a story can find the hidden buttons everyone has, and fast. With this one, Springer went with the whole enchilada, playing the Stars and Stripes bit as loud as he could. Kids needed to hear Daniel's story. Parents needed a hero for their kids. Veterans needed validation for their time served and all that horseshit. Staff Sergeant Daniel Briggs, USMC, would be that Roman candle shooting off into the sky. But if this first foray was any indication of future success, Springer was not hopeful. Three Marine veterans sat down with him, and like lions in a cage, they stalked him, they nudged him, and finally they tore into him. They smelled a rat, and Springer's chances were cooked. He should have known better. Marines could be a secretive lot, especially their more elite units like the Raiders and Force Recon. But it wasn't a complete loss. In their fight, they hadn't killed Springer's energy for the story. In fact, they'd done just the opposite. That told him one very important thing, that if they fought that hard in the beginning, there must be a deeper story to uncover, and every no proved that he was on the right track. Simpletons, he repeated. Then he smiled. Their day would come. Chapter 17 Adam Stokes, Paris, 1974 His ego was as bruised as his body. And one thing he knew was that he would not call home and ask for help. He would do this himself. A cafe waiter took pity on him. After a terse conversation with the owner, a small luncheon was provided, along with enough wine to take the sting off his wounds. Thanks. I promise I'll pay you back, Adam said to the waiter, a crooked agent who might have worked at the cafe since World War I. C'est bon, the waiter said, bobbing his head and patting Adam's forearm. C'est bon. Adam was grateful and almost let the tears come. He held them in, ate as slowly as he could, because he had no real place to go, and hammered back as much wine as he dared. He was well into his cups when two men with hard eyes came tramping into the cafe. They greeted the owner with a bear hug each, planting wet kisses on the old man's cheeks. He shooed them away, and a waiter tended to the fit-looking men like they were his children. It was impossible not to stare. Adam tried not to. 
There was something in the way they chatted with fellow patrons, the way they doled out what could only be compliments to the staff. And yet, those hard eyes. More than once they fell on him and he looked away. But still, the curiosity. He never saw the two men beckon the waiter over and point at the battered American. Adam wouldn't have understood the words if he had heard them. The result was two new guests at his table, each bringing a wine bottle to share. You're American, one of them said, a dark-skinned man with arms that looked like iron ore. Adam placed his accent as Middle Eastern, though where exactly he had no clue. The prickles on the back of Adam's neck returned. He was embarrassed to realize he was afraid. Was this round two with the thugs of Paris? The second man, a man with a clipped British accent, tuned right in. We see you've had some trouble. The Brit pointed at the cuts and bruises. It's nothing. The Brit laughed. If that's nothing, I'd hate to see something. Adam could lie. He could say he fell down some stairs. He'd seen plenty of drunks take a dive after a misplaced step on Paris's uneven stones. But he didn't. He yearned for connection. Or maybe it was just someone to listen, like his older brother had so many times before. The river of wine running through his blood probably helped nudge him toward the truth. I saw a robbery. It was an accident. I wasn't going to say anything, but they caught me. And they did this. He raised his shirt and showed the impressive bruising. The two men nodded and sipped their wine. Where did this happen? the dark one asked. Adam told him. The Brit leaned over and whispered in the Middle Easterner's ear. The dark one smiled. Do you have a place to stay? the Brit asked. Not anymore. The girl I was staying with kicked me out. We have a place for you to stay, the dark one said. But first, let us finish our wine, and then you will show us where this happened. They drank their wine chatted about small things, and the strangers paid for the visit, once again making the rounds in the cafe, bear-hugging the proprietor and planting kisses on everyone they passed. Adam could only watch in awed confusion. Somehow, whether it was by luck or fate, he found where the robbery occurred. Police were there, and the two men told him to stay around the corner. Adam wanted to run again. They were going to tell the police, and he would be the one framed. He expected flashing lights, orders screamed in French, and a gun at the side of his head. The two men returned, and when Adam asked what happened, they ignored his question and told him instead that it was time for a nap. I don't have a place to stay, Adam said. I told you, mate, you come with us. You'll be taken care of. Wait, I don't mean to sound ungrateful. I appreciate you two listening, offering to help me get back on my feet. But I don't know you and then he blurted something he immediately regretted. What are you, mafia or something? The two men looked at each other, shook their heads, and burst out laughing. The dark-skinned stranger looked at him, smiling broadly. We're legionnaires, my good man, and tonight we show you what legionnaires do for their friends. Quick pause in our story to remind you about novel nutrition. Enhance your reading sessions with our bespoke supplements. See if you can figure out which blend is our favorite. 
Oh, and just for Book TV listeners, use code BOOKTV at NovelNutrition.co for a special 20% discount. Now let's return to our story. Chapter 18 Briggs, Rosemary Beach, Florida Anna did a pass through the rented carriage house and came back to lean a hip on the tiny dining room table. I'm not sure which I like more, the framed shell hula skirt that looks like chain mail or the king-sized bedroom nook that might have been modeled after a private meeting room in a Chinese madam's retail outlet. It's eclectic. I like it. Anna shrugged. I didn't know you'd become such a connoisseur of fine things. Rosemary Beach ain't cheap. Being friends with Cal Stokes has its benefits, and rib me all you want, but you've got a lot more of a fine life than I do. There were few people in the world he could talk to like this, and now that he thought about it, maybe Anna was the only one. What was it that put him at ease with her? She was gracious in every way, elegant, beautiful, and wicked smart. I always knew you'd find your way into my world, Mr. Briggs, Anna said, playing the Southern Belle. But you had a question, and if I know anything about you, it's that getting down to business is always high on your list of priorities. And it was. But in that moment, when he looked at her, he wished they could talk about what normal guys and gals talk about. Movies, old friends, their shared past. But that wasn't them. That wasn't their life. He sighed deep inside. Back to business. Right. The Russian. Tell me what you think of him. How much time do we have? As much as we need. Anna nodded, gathering her thoughts. You want concrete or truth mixed with possible fiction? I want to know what you think. Okay. First, let's start with the rumors. I've heard that he's immortal, that he's found the fountain of youth, that he can wrestle polar bears and tear the hearts from lions. Some say he's the world's first trillionaire, that he controls every drop of oil leaving Russia and every scrap of food leaving peasant farms. Here's what I know to be fact. He's a dangerous man. His background aside, he's figured out how to corral a populace who made it very clear they did not want to be corralled. He's captured the imaginations of Russians young and old. National pride is rising every day, though Russians are in the same spot they've been in for decades. Yes, the rich keep getting richer, but he has a firm thumb down on that lot, too. He's not afraid to threaten, bribe, or outright kill if it suits his needs. But in my opinion, that's not the worst of it. We've had despots before. You walk down any street in the world and you'll find a murderer. No, what impresses me about the man, what keeps us watching, is his ambition. Could you imagine when the Berlin Wall fell, when the Soviet Union collapsed? that a supposedly democratically elected president would find a way back into office the way he did? And the moves he made both domestically and overseas, they show his imagination. And it is his imagination that keeps me up at night. It's the reason we've been so careful. It's the reason we stay clear of our homeland. Every operation, every coup, every plot against him has failed. Why do you think that is? He's not untouchable. Oh? I'll tell you the story later. What I want to know is why you put him on that pedestal. 
Why is he different than any other tyrant in the past hundred years? Anna raked her fingers through her hair. You'll think I'm crazy if I say it. You want concrete. Like I said, I want to know what you think. Anna's lips pursed, and Daniel remembered the child he had met years ago, the precocious teen who wanted to see the world and see it on her terms. Okay, this is going to sound a little woo-woo, but I think he's got some kind of good luck charm, some voodoo, like he's always ten moves ahead of Lady Luck herself. I can't explain it properly. It's just what I've seen. Daniel wondered how deep into the despot disposal game Anna and the Fund had gotten. Anna and her people were refugees running from the motherland. What was their motivation, other than the need to reclaim the land of their ancestors? Had they tried to assassinate the man? Daniel took a breath. Let's assume he's somehow blessed. He could be. I've seen and heard stories, too. It's not like he's ironed tight with his security. So how come no one's gotten to him? There are plenty of people who would like that to happen. It comes across as a friend, a confidant even, a man of the people. So what is it? What's the power keeping him going? If it weren't so blasphemous to say it, I'd say it's either God or Satan, Anna said. Daniel knew that was always a possibility. He had seen much to back up that hypothesis. Anna went on. But are you asking because of some act he's committed against America? Or is it directed at your friends? I wouldn't say he's committed an act. Not yet. Sure, Daniel said. I guess at this point it's more of a feeling. One that Cal shares? Yeah. Anna tapped her forehead and then her heart. I know you wouldn't be asking if you didn't believe there was a legitimate threat. Let's go with that feeling. Let's work on this together and see what that two-faced jackal is up to. Chapter 19 Yegorovich, Moscow You have your orders. I look forward to seeing the results. President Konstantin Yegorovich walked from the roof, knowing the man sitting stock still next to the roaring fire wouldn't fail. Not an impossible task. He was the president, after all. And what the president wanted, especially this president, he got. You have a call waiting in your office, sir, one of his secretaries murmured, as he fell in stride a step back to the left. How have you been? the president asked. Very good, Mr. President. And your studies? I'm flattered that you would... Don't do that, Leonid. It shows weakness. Wasted words and stumbled pleasantries are for old nannies and feckless men. You don't want to be a feckless man, do you, Leonid? No, Mr. President. Good. Excuse me, please. He waited for Leonid to depart. Once alone, he picked up the receiver. Tell me. There's been movement with the fund. He'd been after the traitors since coming to office the first time. Slippery devils they were, hiding behind foreign benefactors, always playing their games at Russia's expense. That was Russia's money, his money, and he would get it. Tell me quickly, I have dinner plans. This particular dinner included a brash Olympic diver who'd taken to social media to promote women's equality. The president didn't mind equality, he embraced it. But the underlining message that Russia was somehow evil 
would not stand. He would talk to her, make sure she understood her place. The man on the other end zipped through the report. His brevity was more than pleasing. Very well. Monitor the situation. I'll be in touch with follow-up orders. What were the stinking traitors doing this very minute? He would very much like to know, so that he might talk to them, then kill them, and take every ruble, euro, and dollar they'd ever squirreled away. With that level of money came a higher echelon of power that the Russian very much wanted, needed, required for his very existence. If he was going to beat the Americans, he would need every penny he could steal. Chapter 20 Stokes, Paris They took their time. Cal didn't give trust lightly, and he could see that his uncle was very much the same. They went on walks. Sometimes they talked. Sometimes they admired the city in silence. But when they did talk, Cal felt his past returning, like he was getting a second shot with his father. It would never be a replacement, but at least it was something. And right now, that something was what Cal needed. Boulangerie or café? Cal asked when he joined his uncle on the deck. Neither. I've got someone I want you to meet. Okay. When do we leave? She's coming here. I'm sure she'll bring food with her. There was no deeper explanation. Uncle Adam seemed lost in his thoughts. So Cal took up a chair beside him and watched the tourists swarm through Bonneuf. Bonjour, came a voice from the riverbank. And there she is, Uncle Adam said, rising to lower the gangplank. Cal joined him. The woman waiting on the other side of the slip of water had gray hair poofed out like a stick of cotton candy. She held a cloth grocery bag in each hand and wore a smile that had probably brightened a thousand lives. Bonjour, Mary, Uncle Adam said, walked to the other side to kiss her on each cheek and grab the groceries. He motioned for her to come aboard first. She scooted carefully, her advanced age evident. Cal offered her a hand. Bonjour. Bonjour, she said. She gave him the up-and-down look he had become accustomed to from Parisian women. Nothing lurid, just admiring. Uncle Adam spoke to Mary in lightning French. She replied, and they went back and forth like that until they were inside and Cal had locked the door. They kept chattering like hens down the ladder and into the lower living area. Cal followed, wondering when he was going to be invited to the party. Cal, there's a button right there behind the stereo. Mind pushing it? Uncle Adam asked, then went right back to talking in French. Whatever they were saying sounded good enough for a TV talk show. He went to the stereo and looked left and right inside the little nook that housed the boat's sound system, mostly technology from ten years earlier. Where did you say the button was? Cal assumed his uncle wanted to play some mood music, or maybe it was a button to dim every light in the place in an instant. Right behind the stereo. Just feel around a bit. Cal peeked inside the nook again. All wires and gizmos. No button. Then he reached around the main receiver, feeling inch by inch, and there it was. He pressed it, waited, then looked at Uncle Adam, who raised a finger. 
Give it a minute. Cal gave it 30 seconds. Thought about pressing it again. Waited another 30 seconds. Must be old French technology, Cal thought. Wondering if the water had somehow corrupted whatever it was Uncle Adam wanted flipped. There had been more than one power outage when the washing machine, coffee machine, and too many lights were on at once. Then it happened. Not the hum of speakers powering up. Not the slow dim of mood lighting. No, something incredible and quite out of place happened. A door, two inches thick, slid slow and heavy over Cal's head as the railing that aided climbing passengers split in a spot Cal had assumed was a shoddy joint. The door clicked into place, and then similar casings closed in over each porthole along with the window that was slightly above water level. When everything was buttoned up, Cal felt like he was in a soundproof room. He was turning to Uncle Adam and his guest when the next extraordinary thing happened. Mary, the weathered Parisian bag lady, pulled off her hair and revealed a silver-streaked brown dew tied in a bun. But that wasn't the most shocking. Mary looked right at Cal, and in a middle American accent said, Why don't you grab us a good belt of whiskey, dear? You look like you could use some. Chapter 21 Stokes, Paris You're probably thinking, What the hell is going on here, am I right? Uncle Adam said, making drinks for the three of them. There was a lot more he wanted to ask, but Cal started with, Who are you? The woman looked at least ten years younger, now that she shed the hair and what looked like a good deal of padding under her clothes. I'm an old friend of your uncle's, one of his oldest. You're not that old, Uncle Adam said. The woman slapped the air. Well, of course not. I feel as spry as a forty-year-old, and the get-up helps. But you're American? Cal asked. Of course I'm American. She added a little huff like she'd grown up on Broadway. But I do love pretending I'm French, especially with the tourists. Uncle Adam handed out the drinks, and Cal found himself near guzzling his own. See? I told you you needed a drink, the woman said. She took a healthy swig of her own. Now, down to business. My name is Glenda, last name Younger. Your uncle and I met too many years ago to count. I'll admit that my one vanity is the exact number of my age, so I'll leave that out of the conversation. And if you dare ask, I'll remove every one of your teeth. You're a spy, Cal guessed. She tilted her head. Not exactly. Cal motioned around the room that now felt more like a bank vault. This smells like spy stuff to me. How much can I tell him? Glenda asked their host. Considering the circumstances, I'd say everything, Uncle Adam replied, refilling everyone's drinks. Very well, everything. She took an appreciative sip of her refill and grinned. I wish I could drink whiskey in public. In Paris, if you ask for anything but local wine, they'll take you to the guillotine. But I digress. She sipped again and settled into her chair. Cal couldn't help but be entranced by the woman. It was as if by clicking her heels, she'd become the maestra. I was an English teacher in my past life. The little ones, 
fifth, sixth, seventh grades. I enjoyed it more than I can tell you. I lived in a little Virginia town called Mount Airy. Perhaps you've heard of it? Lovely place. Hallmark movie locale, if you catch my drift. Those were the simple days, when my hours were filled with making sure little Susie found the perfect book to launch her reading career, or getting little Benji an extra helping at lunch because I knew they didn't feed him at home. Those were my days. Noble. Caring. I loved it. She paused for another sip. Then I lost both my parents in an automobile accident, and everything came crashing down. My job, my life, my sanity. I took what little I had, packed it in a single suitcase, and hit the road. I figured I'd be like Steinbeck, traveling the back roads of America to find myself, or maybe even die like my parents. I'm not proud of it, but there it is. Uncle Adam laid a hand on her shoulder and said, Get to the best part, honey. You're going to make Cal all weepy. Glenda slapped his hand away like they were brother and sister. Men, haven't you learned when to let an old woman shower you with painful poetry? She finished her drink, handed the glass for another refill, and continued. It was a fluke, really, the way I got here. I had a series of not-so-nice boyfriends. One was rich. He wanted to take me to Paris. I was young and high most of the time, and I'd never been to Paris. I'd never been outside of the country. So I said yes. Our budding courtship lasted all of two days in the French capital. He left me for a younger model, under age probably, and there I was, penniless, homeless, and utterly miserable. Uncle Adam handed her the refill to which she nodded. After a week or so of feeling sorry for myself and sleeping on park benches, I decided to look for a job. I got lucky. A private school was looking for an English tutor for their high-priced pupils. It was preferred that their candidate not know French. It was a perfect match. I taught English during the day and learned French at night. I had a knack for it. Languages came easily. I spent my nights with the families of the aristocratic children. Soon I was fluent in Swiss, German, Russian, and Italian. Oh, and French, of course. I was quite on my way. It was only a matter of time before some eligible nobleman swept me up in his cloak and carried me off on a lifetime of adventure. Glenda's eyes twinkled when she looked over at Uncle Adam. She raised her glass to him and smiled. And then I met your uncle. And once again, my life flipped itself in an unimaginable direction. I'd let him continue the story, but I know he'll butcher it and tell you all manner of unbelievable stories. So I will tell you the truth. I was hoping maybe you'd get to the point, Uncle Adam murmured over his glass, grinning. You hush. I'm telling the story here, and I don't need any help from the peanut gallery. She directed her attention back to Cal. But your uncle is right. I should get to the point. Decades of jabbering on does become part of your being. Damn if I haven't become that which I despise most, a Parisian. I'm pretty sure that was part of who you were in the beginning, Uncle Adam said. Glenda's glare of mock indignation made Cal laugh. He liked this woman and her eccentricities. And it was obvious that Uncle Adam liked her too. 
Very well. I do admit that I relish the part. Acting is such fun, don't you think? She didn't wait for Cal to reply. She was on a roll. And now, young man, I will tell you how a bunch of know-nothing hippies became spies for the United States of America. Chapter 22 Lena, Camp Spartan, Arrington, Tennessee I don't like the pistol. I'd rather have a rifle, Lena said, struggling to put the weapon into a comfortable grip. She longed for her old rifle, what with its worn stock, the trigger guard that rested so comfortably on her mount. You want to learn or you want to complain, Gaucho said. Lena could tell that the short Hispanic with a dual braided beard really didn't care one way or the other. What if I said I want to complain? Would you make me do push-ups or go for a long run? Why? Do you want to do push-ups or go for a long run? She tried to glare at him, fix him with the toughest look she could muster. But she saw the trickle of a smile on his lips, and before she knew it, she was laughing right along with him. I'm sorry, Lena said. It's okay. I've been known to wallow, too. Top never lets me forget it. Lena had come to know both men well. When they weren't training her to death, they were offering something much more valuable, their friendship. Is he always so happy and peppy, she asked. Gaucho rolled his eyes, then went back to reloading the small arsenal lying on the wood table. Yeah, I swear if he tells me to look on the bright side one more time. Tell me about it. Yesterday, after flipping me over his shoulder and slamming me onto the mat, he told me to look on the bright side, that at least I was still alive. He said it while I was dead for breath. Gaucho shook his head. Top's the optimist of the team. No changing that. Anyway, look on the bright side. You're with me now. They went back to reloading, checking each weapon, and then it was on to live fire. By the time she was well into her 20th magazine of the morning, Lena was happy to note that this pistol, a Springfield 9mm, was beginning to feel less like a stranger. Lunch was a simple affair. Sandwiches, chips, and a water from the chow hall. Gaucho dove in like he always did, barely taking a breath as he inhaled each bite. Lena took it slowly. There was once a time when a sandwich was beyond her means. She had an appreciation for the little things now. She figured she could spend the rest of her life eating sandwiches out of brown bags and be just fine. Tell me about Daniel, Lena said, poking her hand into the bag of barbecue-flavored potato chips. He seems different than the rest of you. Gaucho let out a low belch and laid back on the grass. That's because he is different. Why do you want to know about snake eyes? Daniel Briggs was the one who'd found her. Those eyes that lent themselves so well to his call sign, snake eyes. She felt both fear and a deep curiosity on the few occasions she'd seen him. Fear, because she saw the killer under the calm facade. Curiosity, because, well, he was a mystery. He's a Marine like Cal, right? Yep. Cuckoo crazy to those jarheads. Why they didn't get smart and join the army, I'll never know. This was what she'd come to know of Gaucho. Joke first. Real answer second. Tell me about him, please. Fine. But you should ask him yourself, you know. 
Gaucho closed his eyes. Snake Eyes is probably the coolest operator I've ever come across, and that's saying something. Lena knew that Gaucho had once been a ranking member of the Army's elite Delta Force. He's got this way about him. When the bullets fly, he's the first one to react, but it's never panic. It's like he knows what's happening before it happens. It's hard to explain. Try to, please, Gaucho. He opened one eye, looked at her, and exhaled. Okay, I'll try. But if I tell it wrong, I warned you that I wouldn't tell it right. Lena listened, because she wanted the details. She wanted to know Daniel Briggs, and whether she should consider him friend or foe. Chapter 23 Springer, Defuniac Springs, Florida No more veterans, for Christ's sake. Each one slammed the door in his face like they were allergic to conversation. Springer hated the place. Tight-lipped witnesses and expert journalism did not mix well. While he may not be patient, he was tenacious. He trudged up to the watering hole wedged in between a laundromat and a nail salon. Traffic was light and not a single patron was inside when the dim light swallowed him whole. You open for lunch? Springer asked, barely making out the shape of a woman behind the bar. We are. Can I get you something to drink? Bourbon, straight up, with a beer on the side. Any preference on the bourbon? Springer scanned the shelves. Nothing worth his time, but he was playing a part. I want you to strain your back reaching for it. She looked at him for a moment like he must be in the wrong place. But she put her cleaning rags away and selected a brown liquid off the top shelf. What are you celebrating? Just passing through. Thought I'd kick my legs up for a bit. She poured his bourbon, then filled a glass with Bud Light. And here's the menu. I recommend the burger and fries. Keep the menu. I'll take the burger and fries, please. He downed the bourbon shot and tried not to wince. It was far from smooth. The beer helped. His burger and fries came out in record time, and Springer was surprised that they were good. Definitely better than fast food. The bartender busied herself around the room, cleaning and adjusting like a wedding party was coming. Springer took his time. No need to rush. When she finally made it back to the bar, he asked, You're Holly, right? Her eyes turned slowly toward him. Who told you that? Guy over at the gas station. Said I should come here for a drink and that you'd take good care of me. He held up his hands. I come in peace, I swear. That settled her mood, but he could tell she was still cagey. Time to make his move. Your grandfather was Hollister Herndon, right? Now she froze, hand poised over the ice bin. Before you say anything, I want to tell you that this isn't about you. I don't care what you've done or have not done. He knew her record. An impressive rap sheet. He drew out a hundred-dollar bill and set it on the bar. There's more. Her eyes flickered. What do I need to do? I just need some information. About my grandfather? About someone he knew or had some dealings with. What if I don't know anything? Then you keep that hundred and I'm on my way. The hundred disappeared into her black apron. What do you want to know? 
This was the delicate part. There was only so much he could piece together on his own. He needed witnesses, or at least some level of factual corroboration. A few years ago, there was a dust-up, a big storm, a shootout. Some people died. I heard your grandfather was involved. He pulled out another hundred. Holly eyed it like a jackal. You were named after your grandfather. They called him Holly with an I-E. Everything I've heard about him was that he was a good man, a great man even. But those few years back, he helped someone. Did he ever mention who? Another flicker. The second hundred disappeared. Springer marked that as confirmation. Holly's gaze went to his magic pocket of hundred-dollar bills. Two more made their way to the bar. She swiped them up and said, Granddad was a grumpy old bastard, especially toward the end. But he was nice to me. I don't want to dirty his name. Again, Springer raised his hands. I promise that's not why I'm here. He didn't need to go into specifics. She was hooked by the cash, and he knew it. She nodded. You want to know about the Marine? That's right. How many more hundreds you got in that pocket? How many do you need? Five to tell you. Funny how her country accent got deeper the greedier she got. Five was steep, but doable. Fine, but the information needs to be worth the extra. Now she smiled. What if I told you I knew everything? Everything? The murders. The cover-up. Everything. I'll need proof. She nodded. And I'll need five hundred more. For words and proof, this was turning into a bargain. He made the five bills appear, and she made them disappear. They were quite the pair. Now tell me. She settled a hip against the bar and folded her arms. Daniel Briggs, that's who you want to hear about. Springer nodded and did well to suppress his smile. Holly Herndon turned out to be a master storyteller, and, as it turned out, quite the hoarder as well. Chapter 24 Flap, Washington, D.C. He slipped from the intelligence briefing before any of the lawmakers could corner him. It was just another game. Politicians were easier to sway than an everyday citizen. As long as he knew what they wanted, Edmund Flapp got what he wanted. Director Flapp, he heard one particularly pushy congressman say as he burst from the room. Flapp pointed to the phone at his ear, and the man backed off. Ah, technology. It could play such the ruse. Put a phone to your ear or a white earpiece in your socket, and blam, you were disconnected from ever communicating again. He made the I'll call you sign to the congressman, who was quick to nod like a happy puppy. Yes, the freshmen were his favorites. He liked to slip them a little treat so they thought they were special. This one was no different. He was a Democrat who leaned heavy for strong national defense. He wanted to play war, so Flap would give him a covert war, all the while playing him like a piccolo. Not many of the staffers knew him yet, so he walked along almost anonymously. It was easy to get lost in the prestige of the place. Even though the house offices end, their endless halls felt more like a 1980s office building. 
He reached his destination and did a quick gander to see if anyone followed. None. And he didn't care about the cameras. In fact, cameras were a bonus as long as you knew what to record. And Flap very much did. The interns were out to lunch and his host was playing gatekeeper. Mr. Stern, Flap said, nodding to the right-hand man of the congressman who led the committee that Flap just left. You got five minutes. The boss has a stop to make. Flap thought Ira Stern calling his employer boss to be an interesting choice, considering the reason for meeting. Stern led the way into the small conference room. What's the latest? I need concrete this time. Flap hesitated, though he very much knew what he was going to say. It's delicate. If the president ever finds out, don't forget who got you the top spot at Langley, Flap. I can just as easily yank you out of that chair and toss you into the secretary pool. You're right, of course. Of course I'm right. Stern flexed like he had any muscle to flex. He was a wiry Jew from Boston who thought it'd be a good idea to become a Republican, despite his family's protests. And the man had a hard-on for taking down President Zimmer. What did he say? How did he take it? He meant the news about black spots that were once spies dotting the planet. He told me to look into it. I am. Stern slammed his fist on the table. That coward. This is all his fault. If it weren't for his lame attempt at foreign policy and the way he's wrecked the CIA's funding, your funding. How many so far? How many brave soldiers on the front lines have we lost? Twelve at last count. Stern shook his head like he gave a damn. Flap knew he didn't. Stern had his eyes on one thing and one thing only. Power. You and I both know their blood is on his hands. Keep me apprised of the situation. Thank you for your time, Mr. Stern. A little extra ego stroking never hurt. Flap didn't mind. He had no ego. His mission was discord. That and wiping out any chance that his past might come back to haunt him. He had friends who were doing that very thing right now. His own personal cleaning crew. Chapter 25 Briggs, Rosemary Beach, Florida It was impossible to look at the ocean and not think of her. He had met her by the sea all those years ago. Her innocence was as charming as her demeanor. And the woman she became made Daniel thank the heavens for the gift given to his world. Penny for your thoughts, Anna said, settling down next to him and handing over a bottle of water. She cradled an oversized mug of coffee. I was thinking about when we met, when you were still in Maine. Ada nodded, holding the coffee with both hands. She shivered. Different times. Theirs was a friendship that knew no boundaries. It was one of the reasons he cherished his time with her. She took the time to think and answer with her soul, very much like he had learned to do. Hers was a gift given at a young age. His was a gift given through trial and pain. Do you think about your father? he asked. Sometimes. What do you remember? Daniel liked to remember the kind pastor who'd first taken him in, invited the broken marine into his home, despite what ulterior motives he might have had. Anna sighed. 
I remember pancake breakfasts on Sunday. I remember watching him till the fields. I always laughed when he stripped off his shirt, turned back to the house, and flexed, and then dug whatever root or stone out of the field. There was a good man in there. There was. I miss him. Sometimes I wonder what could have been, what kind of a life we'd have today. Daniel cracked open the water bottle. I thank God every day that he brought your father into my life. If he hadn't, I wouldn't have you to keep me on the straight and narrow. He bumped her with his hip. I hope you know how much you mean to me and how appreciative I am for the time we share. She bumped him back. You make me sound like a corporate trainer who came in and turned your business around. Well, my business was bankrupt for sure. And if you hadn't helped me cook the books, I'm pretty sure the feds would have hanged me for tax evasion. Cook the books? Really? She was smiling at him and they shared a laugh. This was the easy life, the one he never thought he'd have. His was a life of service, and that service was to his friends, his country, and those in need. Daniel knew what his friends called him behind his back and sometimes to his face. It had been a hard-fought peace, but well worth it. The friend at his side was proof that the best relationships were forged through turmoil and the worst of life's lessons. Two kids ran by, barefoot on the green lawn. Their parents appeared a moment later, the father chasing with a bucket full of beach gear and four chairs strapped to his back. The mother waddled not far behind, her belly bulging with the next of the brood. Dad was yelling for the kids to slow down. Mom was huffing and puffing. Come on, we should help them, Anna said. Daniel called out to the dad. Sir, let me help you with that. The dad looked back, harried and frazzled, nodded his thanks, and dumped the chairs on the lawn before sprinting after the kids. Daniel gathered up the chairs and turned back to see if Anna and the mother needed help. What he saw made absolute zero sense. The mother's belongings were on the ground. Anna was standing still, looking right at the woman who seemed to be saying something. Anna cast a furtive look back at Daniel, and he was pretty sure he heard the stranger say, Don't look at him. He took a step forward, then stopped. There was a small pistol in the woman's hand, resting on her supposed pregnant belly, pointed right at Anna. Chapter 26 Anna, Rosemary Beach, Florida Anna was no rookie in the world of espionage. It was practically her second major. Her father had been a spy. A liar, really, but still a spy. Her mother was a spy as well. It ran in Anna's blood. Her position as head of the fund took her one giant step further down the espionage superhighway. She needed to keep the woman's attention. She needed to give Daniel time. Who uses children? That was the first question that came to mind. She left it unasked. She instead asked the second. Who sent you? Just keep smiling, and I won't have my husband kill your boyfriend, the woman said with a smile that matched the cheery Rosemary Beach weather. At least they didn't know who Daniel was, or they might have dispatched him first. Their mistake. Keep talking, Anna. 
Let me guess, you're Russian. Your accent is good, but the way you round your consonants makes me want to reach for a blini. The woman's face told her she'd hit the mark, and that meant they were in far greater danger than a simple mugging or kidnapping for ransom. Honey, I'm not going to tell you a damn thing. All you need to do is come quietly. Now, in a second, I'm going to fake like I'm having labor pains. They do hurt, you know. You tell your boyfriend you want to take me to my place. You understand? Anna nodded. Good. Now I'm going to put this gun back under my belly, but it's still pointed at you. So don't make a wrong move, or you're deader than a coon on hunting day. She bent at the waist and moaned. Oh, she said, loud enough for her husband, who was still corralling the kids, to hear. Anna was about to play along, to say that she was more than capable of helping. But the flurry of movement behind her elicited a slack-jawed gape from the woman holding her at gunpoint. Anna had no choice but to look. Chapter 27 Briggs, Rosemary Beach, Florida He couldn't hear what the woman was saying to Anna. He couldn't see the weapon anymore. But he sensed, rather than saw, the tensing in Anna's body. It was like a ripple in the force, the universe tilted just so he could feel it. The dad and the two kids were playing chase, the key-coated gate having stopped to the beach charge. But Daniel felt the occasional glance from the husband. The man's attention was not where it should be. The only logical deduction was they were working together. A first for Daniel with children involved, but he had seen too many things in his life to let that get in the way. You flex when you need to. Adapt or die. Daniel went for the man first, guessing that he might also have a weapon. He made like he was going toward the restroom sitting just inside the gate, but as the playing threesome swerved across his path, he let the kids run by, and he took the man out with a blow that took him straight to the ground. To whoever might be watching, it looked like an innocent collision. Daniel followed the man down like he was dazed. He confirmed that the man was unconscious and did a quick search of his person. As Daniel had suspected, there was a gun inside the holster of his Tommy Bahama shorts. He slid it out and was about to turn when he heard the woman yell, Oh! It was part of the play. Daniel and the entity deep inside of him that he called the beast knew the ploy. There was only one way to kill a ploy. Attack it head on. Chapter 28 Anna, Rosemary Beach, Florida. It was pure reflex that made Anna drop to the ground, turning as she fell. The woman above her grunted, surely confused. What Anna saw next brought back vivid memories of the past, of the Daniel she had first known. He ran at them, and when the woman's pistol came out, Daniel somehow pivoted, springing like a jungle cat. The first two shots spat and missed. Anna tried to kick the woman's legs out from under her, but she moved aside, ready for anything. Daniel hit the ground in a roll, and Anna saw the flash of his eyes, more animal than man. He'd gone to that place few can go. His hands came up. Two more shots left the gun of the female assassin. Two shots missed the rolling marine. His did not. 
somehow impossibly. Two shots left Daniel's new weapon. Two shots hit their mark. Anna saw the woman stumble back, but she still had her gun ready to fire again. Daniel did not hesitate. Six more shots ran from the original two in her chest up to her head. She fell back, obviously dead. Anna was on her in a second, removing the weapon and searching for more. Daniel scooped her up and pulled her along. We need to go, but we need to find out who they were. I think we can safely guess who sent them. So, the Russian had finally made his play, but why now? He had had his chance in the past. The only thing she could think was that she'd inadvertently pulled Daniel into some kind of horrible mess. As we close today's captivating episode on Book TV, don't forget to check out Novel Nutrition. Tailored for book lovers, our supplements are designed to complement your reading lifestyle. Use code BOOKTV for a 20% discount on your first order at novelnutrition.co. Enhance your reading experience with Novel Nutrition and don't forget that every purchase helps support an author.